I work one day a week, and uh, on that day I work, I get very tired, and it's hard for me to get around. After our service this morning, I went into two meetings. I got home about 1.30. There were some folks on my porch, so I talked to them until 3.30, and I sat down in my recliner, and I got my Bible. I opened it up, and I fell asleep. And when I woke up, it was two minutes to five. So uh, from that moment forward, it was a racing the clock, and I was late, and I'm so sorry about that. My wife can't be with me tonight. She had to work today. It's probably one of the reasons why I overslept. But uh, I know she's uh, she misses being here very much. Uh, currently, uh, I'm writing a, a book, a workbook for Bible classes on the Holy Spirit. Now, the Willett Church is going to publish it. Uh, I published a book last year uh, on the Holy Spirit, and this year I've been writing one that the Bible classes can use. Well, I needed, uh, I needed a quote, and I needed to take it out of context. So a couple weeks ago, several weeks ago now, I wrote to the uh, author of this article, and I asked him for permission to use a quote. And we got into a lengthy conversation. Uh, he, uh, he had uh, committed a sin, and he made a statement. He said, I crossed my Rubicon. And as quick as he made that statement, I... I had something go off in my head. It, it triggered an article I, re- I read about 15 years ago. After we got off the phone, I went back into my files and I found the article, and I reread it again. Uh, it's uh, it was about Julius Caesar. That's what we know him as. Before he was Julius Caesar, though, he was Julius. He was a baby, a boy, then a young man, and then he grew up and went onward. As a young man, Julius, uh, he was a great orator. Uh, even though he was young, he could speak to crowds of people and move them. Uh, he, he captivated their attention. They trusted him, they believed him, and they were willing to follow him. Uh, he was a lot like Adolf Hitler, in, in so far as skills are concerned, though his motives were more honorable. Julius became interested in military tactics, and that's what he studied, and he became a master tactician. Well, that is a good combination for a political figure. You've got a man who at that time, your national leaders were usually military people. You've got a man who's got all the skills of a military leader, and at the same time, he's a great orator. He could, he could speak to the crowds. He could move them, and he became powerful at a young age. At the age of 40, the Roman Senate appointed him the governor over Gaul. Gaul was what we know today as central France. From there, he launched out, and he, he fought uh, various tribes of people. Uh, he fought uh, the Celtics which uh, constitute a part of uh, Great Britain. He fought many German tribes, and he conquered them. And his fame was growing in leaps and bounds. He moved his army southward into Italy. He came to a city known Ravenna. And from there, he received a letter from the Roman Senate. Uh, They wanted him to resign his commission and disband his army. He'd become too powerful, and they see him now as a threat. They were afraid that if he decided to, 
he might be able to capture the heart of the Roman people and become the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. Therefore, they wanted him to resign. Well, he started mulling that over in his mind. Should I? Should I not? What should I do? As he thought, he continued moving his army southward. It was only a matter of time he came to a river called Rubicon. Now that river was a significant place in Julius's life. The uh, imperial city had a standing order that no army was to cross the Rubicon. If any of the armies of the Roman Empire crossed the Rubicon, they were getting too close to the imperial city. They seen that as a threat, a possible assault against the powers that be. They took it as an act of aggression and a declaration of war. As Julius and his army sat there on the bank of the Rubicon, he, he mulled it over in his mind. If he crosses, he's going to war against who knows who. Or he could do what they said. Well, he decided to cross the Rubicon, and he did. When he got to the other side, he looked at his troops, and he said, Men, the die has been cast. Now that day, two proverbs came into existence, which are still used today. Crossing the Rubicon, and the die is cast. And that's the event that brought those about. What it means was, you can't go back. You've gone too far. Airline industry has a similar term. It's called the point of no return. The Behind the pilot, the co-pilot, you have a navigator. And his job is to keep up with where the plane is. He picks out the point of departure and then the point of arrival, and then he calculates all the space in between. And there's an imaginary line on his chart. It's called the point of no return, and what it means is simply this. If you cross that imaginary line and you start having plane trouble, it's too late to go back. you got to go forward. So they call it the point of no return. As I think about those three terms, I, I personally find them to be very somber thoughts. Crossing the Rubicon, uh, the die is cast, and the point of no return. It is very possible, very possible, and actually it happens to all of us, is that we reach a point various times in our life and there's no turning back. We make a decision, and right or wrong, we got to live with it. And there's nothing we can do. You can't undo it. Let me give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. A businessman was charged with embezzling funds from the corporation that he worked with. It was an ugly lawsuit. It was a large company. He was a well-known uh, person. It went on for two or three years. I don't remember the exact dates. But he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees trying to defend himself. Uh, why the charges were concocted, I'm not really sure. At any rate, in the end, he was exonerated, not guilty. Well, reporters flocked to him after the trial was over. How do you feel? <laughs> well, how do you think he feels? He feels great. 
He's not going to prison. He doesn't have to pay a fine. Well, what about the, the, the money you spent to defend yourself? Well, he was a, a rich guy. Uh, it's water under the bridge. Well, all's well that ends well, huh? And he said, no. No, it's not. Who's going to give me my reputation back? Have you ever stopped to think about that, how many times reputations are slandered and you can't undo it? There's been a lot of times in my life where people have said things about me that are not true, and other people believe it. And even though the person who said it may come to me and said, I said such and such, and I'm so sorry I said it, and I can forgive them, we can kiss and make up. But the fact of the matter is, that rumor is still out there, and it's still circulating, and it's still very, very much alive in the minds of people. What do you do? You can't take it back. You can't undo it. You've got to learn to adjust with it. This man most likely will go to his grave with a shadow hanging over his head. A lot of people are probably convinced, despite what the verdict was, that he was a criminal. And if history records the event in his life, which it might just very well do because of who he is, that shadow will even be in the history books. You see, even though he was innocent of all charges, in a sense he had crossed a Rubicon. And he'll never get his reputation back again. Not in this world. A man, a good man. Good family man, hard worker. He was a good neighbor. He was a good citizen. He was a, a good employee. He was the kind of a guy you'd like to have over for a Saturday afternoon barbecue. He was just a really nice guy. He came home from work one day. And he noticed that his wife was uh, agitated. Something was upsetting her. And he picked up on it. What's the matter? Nothing. Nothing. Everything's fine. Well, she's jerking and, and, and trembling, and he could tell by her demeanor that something's wrong. So he keeps pressing the point what is wrong? What is disturbing you so much? She couldn't bear it any longer. Finally, she confessed. It was his best friend. He had been to their house that day. He invited himself in, and he raped her. He never spoke a word. He went to his closet. He got his shotgun. He loaded it. He got into his car. He drove to the man's house, knocked on the door, he came to the door, he stuck the gun in the man's chest, and he blew his chest out the other side. He went to prison. And, unless he's paroled, he'll spend the rest of his natural life there. In a sense, he crossed the Rubicon. He made a decision that day. And because of the decision he made, his life was altered, and it will never be the same again. You can't go back. You can't put the dead guy back together again. In San Francisco, there is the Golden Gate Bridge. A lot of people use the Golden Gate Bridge as a means of committing suicide. Suicide is an interesting subject to consider. There's a lot of variables involved in it. But uh, one time on TV, one of the programs was doing an expose on people who had attempted suicide off the Golden Gate Bridge. 
And if you've ever seen the bridge, you would realize that most people who try to commit suicide off that bridge are successful. Few people live to tell the tale. Well, they interviewed one guy who did survive. And he told this story before the camera, and I watched it. He said he parked his car, he walked up onto the bridge, he stepped over the rail, and he held on for dear life. And then he turned loose. He said, the second I turned loose, I knew I made a mistake. But there's no going back. He can only go forward at that point. He had crossed the Rubicon. The die was cast. That was the point of no return. He hit water doing about 60 miles an hour, they estimated. Broke most of the bones in his body, and he'll never be out of the bed again. A lot of times we make decisions that affect our lives, and there's nothing we can do to undo them. One decision can alter our life throughout the entirety of our lifetime. A young man was having marital problems. I don't know specifically what they were, but he was greatly agitated. He wanted to win his wife back. They think he attempted to feign a suicide. Apparently, he must have thought if his wife knew that he loved her that much, maybe she would take him back and they could reconcile. So, he went out into the garage, he threw a rope over the rafters, and he tied a noose around his neck, and he stood a bucket there. And they believed that he tried to guesstimate how much rope to use so that when he kicked the bucket out from under him, he would, his toes would touch the, the concrete. And while it looked like he did legitimately try to commit suicide, he could keep himself alive because he was up on his toes. He miscalculated. And when they found him, he was dead. He made a decision. He crossed the Rubicon. The die was cast, the point of no return, and he can't go back again. All of us have those kinds of decisions. All of us make decisions that will affect our lives for the rest of our life. Not only in this world, but sometimes in the eternal world as well. Now, let's apply that to religion. One of the points of no return that all of us meet, in my estimation, is what we call the age of accountability. There is a, this term that we've coined to describe that moment in time when we are now responsible for our actions. We know that we have transgressed the law of God and there are eternal consequences because of it. Prior to that moment in time, we are in a state of innocence. We're not saved people because we've nothing to be saved from. We've never committed a sin. At that stage of our life we are safe people but when we reach the age of accountability and we commit our very first sin haven't we in a sense crossed the Rubicon you see it's not possible to go back you can't undo sin 
You can't unsin a sin. Once we commit that first sin, our life is altered, and we will never know a state of perfect innocence ever again. We've gone too far. All we can do now is go forward. By the grace of God, we can receive forgiveness. And we can be reconciled back to God and be in a saved state. But we'll never know that perfect state of innocence again as long as we live. You see, there are Rubicons that pertain to our religious life. And we make decisions that's going to affect our lives. And the point that I'm trying to stress is that we have to be careful about the decisions we make. We have to consider what the consequences are, whether we can live with them or not. If you have a Bible, you may want to turn to Matthew chapter 19, because now we'll get down to the meat of the matter. I'm wanting to take this idea, the concept of crossing the Rubicon, and I want to apply it to marriage. Marriage, according to the Bible, is a type of crossing the Rubicon. I don't know that a lot of people, perhaps most people in our society today, understand what marriage is. I don't know if there's a lot of people in the church that understand what marriage is, what God's laws of marriage are. Today in the world that you and I live in, it's a difficult subject because most of us have adultery close to us. It could be a child, it could be a parent, it could be a sibling, it could be a very close friend. And because there is so much adultery, preachers very often don't want to deal with the issue. They don't want to talk about it because it makes people upset. It's not, uh, it's not a way to ensure job security. And if the matter is never discussed from the pulpit, how is the church going to know what God's laws are on this very, very vital subject? But I've, I've listened to what a lot of people have to say about marriage, what their thoughts are about it, and I've got to be honest with you, I've been astounded. There was a woman on television who was engaged to be married. And they asked her on this uh, panel thing, what do you expect to see in your marriage? And she said, well, I suppose we'll be very happy for six, eight, if we get lucky, maybe ten years. But we're sure to grow tired of one another. And when we do, we'll most likely get a divorce and hopefully find another person we can love and go through it again. This woman had divorce in her mind before she ever got married. And that's not that unusual. If, before I marry a couple, I usually, have, I usually counsel with them. And one of the questions I always ask is, what are you going to do if such and such a problem occurs? And to my utter amazement, several times, people have said, well, we'll get a divorce. Divorce was a part of the equation as they entered into marriage. And that staggers me because a lot of the people I marry are members of the church. 
and yet this is still their concept of marriage. Well, I want to look at marriage through the eyes of God tonight. Marriage is a permanent covenant. According to Jesus, in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 6, God joins two people together. And he said, What God joins together, let not man separate or put asunder. Several times I've been privileged to marry people. Well, what exactly happens? Well, we have a ceremony. People exchange vows to one another. Rings are exchanged. I sign a document owned by the state of Tennessee. It's returned to Nashville. And these two people are married according to the laws of the state of Tennessee. But what really happened? God joined those two people together. That's what really took place. God is the one who marries us. And Jesus said what God joins, man is not to separate. Man isn't to tamper with it. Man isn't to try to undo what God's done. We're supposed to leave it alone as it is. And according to the Bible, there's only one reason why that marriage should be terminated. And that is because of death in Romans 7-2, which was read just a few moments ago. When one or the other of the marriage partners die, the covenant comes to an end. She is loosed from the marriage law, according to Jehovah God. We need to understand that marriage is a three-way covenant. It's between the male and the female and God. It's a triangle. When you think about it, think of a triangle. If you want to, think about people being cuffed together. A man and a woman is cuffed to one another, and with the other arm, each one is cuffed to God. We're making promises here. I will honor, trust, and keep you, and God is my witness. Okay? So it's a three-way agreement. It's not merely a two-way agreement. And while two people may agree to disagree and dissolve the marriage, God will have no part of that. He won't accept that as justifiable reason for dissolving that marriage. God hates marriage or divorce rather. Malachi chapter 2 and verse 16. That word hate is a strong term. God hates it. He abhors divorce. Whenever there's a divorce, at least one person had to have committed sin. Perhaps two. God hates sin. Therefore, God hates divorce. Again, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16 and verse 38, God chastises those who, quote, break wedlock. The word wedlock is a compound term, wed and lock. Wed conveys the idea of weld, to be welted. God has welted two people together, wedded. The word lock, of course, we know what that is. It fastens something together. God chastises those who attempt to break his weld. God will chastise those who attempt to break his lock. He's very, very serious 
about the matter of marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, our Lord was confronted by the adversaries over the subject of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. They thought they had it all figured out. There were two schools of thought then, just like there are now. And they hoped to entrap him. But, like so many times before, they could not do it. But in Matthew 19 and verse 9, Jesus laid down the law. It's a simple law. I was at Willow Avenue Congregation about 25 years ago, maybe a little longer than that. And Brother Guy in Woods was taking questions from the audience. And somebody asked him to explain Matthew 19, verse 9. And as long as I live, I'll never forget the man's answer. He said, Matthew 19, 9 does not need explaining. It needs to be believed. It is a very simple statement, but in our complicated, sin-sick world, it can be very, very hard for us to accept. Here's what Jesus said. I say to you, regardless of what anybody else says, this is what I say. Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. There are two things in there I'd like to consider for just a moment. Number one, you'll notice that adultery occurs after the divorced person remarries. Whoever, he said, whoever uh, divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Now he used that language that way on purpose. There are times when people might have to get a divorce. For example, there is the possibility that the husband may tell the wife, I don't want you to obey God anymore. What is she to do? Or it could be a situation where the husband beats up his wife and his children and they fear for their lives. What are they to do? Are they to stay there? Are they to take the punishment? Or is there an alternative? Well, there is an alternative. The Apostle Paul discussed the matter in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, in verse 11, he was discussing in the context the very possibility of a husband who did not want his wife to be a Christian. And if he insisted that she ought not, Paul said it may be that she has to depart from her husband. And if she departs, let her, number one, remain unmarried, or number two, be reconciled unto her husband. You see, God knew there could be instances where one partner may have to get away from the other for very valid reasons. And if such were to occur, they could leave, but they can't remarry again. Secondly, there's the exception clause in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 9. Whosoever <clears throat> divorces his wife except for sexual immorality. You'll notice Jesus did not use the word adultery. The word adultery is a specific term. It has to do with a husband or a wife breaking the marriage vow by having a relationship with someone of the opposite sex. That's the idea of adultery. But Jesus didn't use the term. He used a broader term, the word fornication or sexual immorality. 
You see, sexual immorality has to do with sexual impropriety. In other words, if your spouse was homosexual, that would qualify as fornication. If your partner was guilty of bestiality, that too would qualify under the heading of fornication. Jesus apparently knew, since he designed us the way we are, that it is quite possible in some circumstances where one person may be unfaithful to their mate and their mate may not find it in their heart to continue in this relationship any longer. Some people have and do, and I, I salute folks who can do that, but apparently there are some people who can't. They can't get past it. They can't get beyond it. And Jesus said in a case like that, where your partner has been unfaithful to you and has committed fornication, if the innocent party chooses to, they can divorce their spouse and they can remarry. But what about the guilty person? Oh, they're still handcuffed to God. God broke the weld of the innocent person. He broke the lock that bound them but not the guilty person. At that point, that person has crossed the Rubicon. The die is cast. There's no turning back. The man I talked about at the beginning of this lesson that I spoke to is a very dear friend of mine, a former teacher. I love him very much. He taught me a lot of what I know in the area of Christian apologetics. I thought he hung the moon. A few years ago, his sin was exposed. He had committed fornication. For over two decades, he had committed fornication with men. with boys he's known around the world he's a great champion of truth a great defender of the faith he stood up for Jesus in countries all over the place but he had a deep deep dark secret and then his wife found out I suppose fornication would be bad under any circumstances. But with young men, for over two decades, it was more than she could bear. He had to go. He has two sons who have children of their own. His sons are devastated. I suppose the fact that their father was so well known added insult to injury. I could just imagine what went through their minds. People knew what their daddy did. And probably whenever they seen folks, they thought, at least, that's what they're thinking of when they see me, what my father did. His sons were humiliated beyond belief. And they can't get past it. They won't visit their daddy. They won't call him or talk to him on the telephone. And they will not write him a letter. And 
as it stands now, he'll never see his grandchildren for the rest of his life. He committed this sin, or I should say confessed it, at the age of about 50. Should he live to be 80 years old, he'll spend 30 years living a celibate life. He'll never come home again to a wife that adores him. He'll never pass a ball with his sons. And he'll never ever bounce a grandchild on his knee. He said, John, I crossed my Rubicon. He was the one that wrote the article that I read. After that conversation, my heart was broken. And I had to preach this sermon at Center Grove. We must teach our young people that marriage is forever. We must be conscious of the fact that whenever we make decisions, they can alter our lives forever. There are some decisions that aren't grave, but there are some decisions that do bear heavy consequences. Not only in this world, but in the world to come. This brother will abide by the rules because he wants to go to heaven and he wants to live by, with God. But now he's got to live with the consequences of a wrong decision. If you are not a Christian, God wants you to believe Jesus. He wants us to stop sinning, to be baptized in water for remission of sins. As Christians, we are to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. We are to carefully weigh our decisions in the balances, always considering the potential consequences. We need to think carefully, prayerfully, because it's just possible that we might do what we can't undo. And if we do, and we want to go to heaven, we may never know another happy day in this earth. And it's something to think about before it happens. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, please come while we stand and sing.